0: Richards, that's great. Okay, well, welcome to this uh, year's evening series, which is going to be called Lamp in the Darkness. Um, Can we get the screen up there? That'd be brilliant if we could. (laughs) Possibly not. Well, Let's read a passage from Scripture. I wasn't going to read one to start with because we'll be looking at lots of uh, different bits later on, but let's read some verses from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. He's one of the three prophets that we're ah, we're up there, that's good, that we're talking to tonight, but we can just read some verses anyhow. So uh, the book of Hosea, um, and uh, we'll read towards the end of the book from uh, chapter 14. This is what it says. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to our Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say, our gods, to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. Then God replies, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in the shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. That's probably enough to get us going. Why have I called this lamp in the darkness? Well, simply because of a verse which I quoted this morning. You might remember from Second Peter chapter 1. And Peter, in his, his final letter, just not long it would appear before his death talks about experiencing transfiguration you know when Jesus was just glorified in front of uh, his, his special disciples and uh, uh, with him appeared two of the great Old Testament figures it was an incredible confirming moment that Jesus was exactly who they were starting to suspect he was but then Peter talking about that goes on to say we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets You must pay pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. One day, in other words, this life will be over. You'll be in a place of eternal light where Christ, the morning star, will shine in your heart. But for now, you're living in the darkness. And in the darkness, the words of the prophets are super important. Because they're a lamp shining through the darkness, helping to illuminate just a little bit of the darkness for us. There are lots of things we don't understand about life. We don't know quite where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen to us next. We don't understand many of the things that are happening in the world around us. We don't know what, what quite God has in view for our church or our life. But we do know lots of things. And that's what keeps us going. The light that shines through the darkness, more and more revealing God's purpose as time goes by. So, we're going to look at the prophets and prophecy um, uh, over this year, and uh, it's a fairly ambitious uh, uh, topic that we've taken on. I'm I'm looking forward to doing it, I must admit. Uh, We said last week, who were prophets anyway? There are lots of prophets in the Bible, but what was their job? Some people think the job of a prophet is just to foretell the future. That's part of it. It's not the whole thing. And uh, what we said last week was this, a prophet is somebody who is called by God, people called by God, it could be a man or a woman, called by God to represent him and speak his words. There have been lots and lots of prophets down through history. We know about 45 males and 11 females from the the Bible, from the names that we get. But God used prophets right down through Bible history to bring to people things that they otherwise wouldn't know about what God wanted them to know. And uh, we said, too, that there are three main areas that prophets speak about. One is the character of God, what God is like, how he thinks about things, what attitudes he has towards, like honesty and truth and love and compassion and, and, and all sorts of different areas. The second thing is the responsibility of people. If you are one of God's people, how should you react to the character that he got? And the third thing, of course, is the future bit. The future of creation. Another important strand. Of what the prophets are saying is, look, God is like this, and therefore this is going to happen. You have this responsibility, and this is how God is guiding you into the future. So under the character of God, they, were, they spent a lot of time clarifying who God is and how he thinks about things. And the responsibility of people, They were calling people back to the great agreement. What's the great agreement? Well, it's often called the covenant in the Old Testament. The agreement between God and the children of Abraham about how he was going to be their God and protect them and look after them and they were going to be his people and they were going to be faithful to him and reflect his name and his reputation throughout the nations so that gradually the world would catch sight of who was in charge of the whole show and come back to the God that they'd abandoned so long before. And uh, that great agreement was never broken by God. It was broken by the people of God again and again. And that's why. Because people are human. Because people are sinful. They, they needed to be brought back to the great agreement. It's like that thing uh, uh, we sang tonight, Oh, for a closer walk with God, which started in a poem written in the 18th century by William Cooper. And Cooper was somebody who had a tremendous conversion came to, to know God um, early in his life uh, through John Newton and others around him uh, from that circle. And uh, it just it just transformed him to start with. But we find him writing in that hymn, uh, the, uh, uh, he's remembering the, the, the way it used to be and, uh, uh, and saying it's not like that anymore. Where is the so refreshing view of Jesus and his word? And he's conscious that it's his own failure that's taken that away from the dearest idol I have known. Whatever that idol be, help me to take it from its throne and worship only thee. In other words, it's possible for the people of God to stray away from the agreement. And that's another major job of the prophets to tell people where they're supposed to come back to. The third thing, gradually they're revealing God's plans for the future until eventually you reach the final revelation in Jesus of what God has got planned for the future of the universe. And then the picture is more or less complete. But we'll get to that one of these days. Now, that means that they were much more than just uh, fortune tellers of the future. Mentioned last week too, the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Religion, which has got quite a few very helpful articles in it online, about prophecies in the Bible and in the ancient Near East. And it makes the point that props were different from magic workers. There were magic workers everywhere. From excavated texts, it says we learn that the ancient world was filled with individuals who predicted future events or future courses of action by dreams, use of a divining rod, shaking marked arrows in a quiver, consulting terra uh, figurine idols, or examining animal numbers, hepatoscopy. Uh, the British Museum is filled with ancient Near Eastern texts about astrologers who observe signs in the heavens, eclipses, uh, configurations of planets, sun, moon, uh, and so it goes on. And then it says, such persons are not prophets. Prophets are figures who receive messages from the gods and relay them to humans. And prophets in the Bible are people who have enough insight into God to relay messages from God To other people. They don't have this insight because of some super quality in them, some psychic ability or whatever, but simply because God has called them and shown them a bit more of his heart than other people have got. And so they're able to talk confidently about this is where God is, and this is where you ought to be, and this is what God is going to do. If you look at the history of prophecy through the Bible, how does it develop? A lot of people, you read a few articles online where people argue about who was the first prophet? And there are various candidates. Um, We've talked about the foretelling tradition in the the Near East. Out of that come these these people called prophets who claim that they have messages from God. And uh, uh, in the Bible, you've got one or two who do. But who's the first one? Well, the three main candidates in these articles that you read are Enoch, the first man, because he made a prophecy way back in in Genesis. And uh, uh, people say, that makes Enoch the first prophet. I don't think so necessarily. He may have been a prophet. I don't know. But uh, it's possible for people who are not prophets to prophesy. We'll come to that some week, I promise. But we won't talk any more about it tonight. There is a gift of prophecy in the New Testament, and there are people who are prophets, but there are also people who will speak prophetically without actually having that gift. It's a bit like uh, you don't have to be an evangelist to lead someone to Christ. You don't have to be a preacher to build somebody up by pointing them to a verse in Scripture. All of those functions, which are are normal to some people, can be executed by one Christian or another from time to time. So I'm not sure about Enoch. Then there's Abraham. And certainly, Abraham had a a close walk with God. He was the friend of God. He was someone to whom God spoke. But I'm not sure that makes him a prop either. Abraham was lots of different things. Anyway, uh, one that's uh, fairly sure ground is Samuel. Now, there were definitely prophets around before Samuel came along, but Samuel, you remember how he grew up in the temple and uh, God spoke to him very early in his life. And from there on, he had the job of telling the people of Israel what God had to say to them. Samuel seems like perhaps the first clear example of a prophet in the Old Testament. You could say Moses as well. Uh, Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy says there was never a a prophet like Moses, so he qualifies as a prophet too. Really doesn't uh, matter too much where it started, but certainly from very early on in the Bible, you have these people who are used by God to communicate what he has to say to other uh, members of his people. And out of that, in the days of Samuel, come what are called the schools of the prophets. You read about them mainly in the days of Elijah and, and, and Elisha. But clearly Samuel had started training up other people, young men, uh, who had some kind of a gift that he recognised, so that they too could be prophets. I suppose it went back to his own training. When his mother took him, do you remember the story, and left him in the, the hands of Eli from being very, very young indeed? And he was trained uh, in uh, all the ways of God and became a prophet through that. Well, in the same way, it seems Elijah started to do that with uh, uh, other people. Uh, Samuel started to do that with with, with other people. And uh, a a body of prophets grew up in Israel. We don't know much about them. We don't know how they were trained. We don't know most of what they did. But we know they were still there in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Because you read a bit about them. Uh, in the passages that, uh, that talk about Elijah and especially the end of his life and Elisha taking over. It's clear that Elijah had established these schools where people, significant numbers of people came together at, uh, when Elijah was about to be transported to heaven, for instance. There were 50 of them who came out from one particular school and said, well, let's just watch what happens here. Another 50 went looking for him in the wilderness um, uh, after he'd been taken up to heaven because they didn't buy the idea he'd gone to heaven. They thought he might, must be out on the hill somewhere. And uh, so there we're talking about fair numbers of people. And Elisha, who was much more of a sociable character than Elijah ever had been, was given the job of looking after these schools and tending them and, and building up the people within them. The end result was that you have people in, in uh, the, the nation of Israel who are recognized by prophets, lots of them, and they attend the court of the king, advise the king, they're in his ear, and uh, all of that goes on for a few centuries. And then you reach the ninth century. What happens in the ninth century is that writing becomes common. It had been around for quite a few uh, centuries before then, but the first examples we have of uh, uh, an Israelite Hebrew script come from the 9th century. And that was a century in which writing was not just used for uh, something in court by professional scribes, but it became more common around the place. And so uh, some people started to think clearly, these messages that the prophets are getting, some of them, are not just for now. You will find your donkey if you go up this mountain. No, not that one, the one on the left. You know, not just messages for then, but messages for all time. And so some of these things start being written down. And there are three great prophets, particularly who we'll get to in a minute, um, who are focused on that, who are the first of the writing prophets. Well, what goes on, and uh, prophecy comes to uh, a halt when the scriptures stop being written until John the Baptist comes along. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Elijah would make his return. <laughs> and so people said to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Meaning, I'm not the same person as Elijah. But Jesus made it clear that John was Elijah in the sense he was doing the same job. He Elijah Mark 2, if you like. What did you go into the wilderness to see, says Jesus? A prophet? Yes, he is. And he's much more than a prophet. He's the Mark 2 version. He's got an even more important job to Elijah because he's the harbinger of the great final prophet is to come. And of course, that's Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And so in Jesus, the revelation that God has to give of his his plan for the world becomes complete. But that doesn't necessarily mean that prophecy stops. For one thing, the uh, revelation of Jesus needed to be codified, needed to be set down for all time. And that's where you reach the, 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 the apostles and prophets. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus promised before he left that when he'd gone, the Holy Spirit would bring to the minds of his disciples all that he'd said and taught. And they would be able to put down for all time the things that now were to be added to God's revelation and, and would complete it. And so the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. As I mentioned briefly last week, that is hendiadis. That doesn't mean some of them are apostles and some of them are prophets. It means the apostles who were prophets. It's like, you know, if you think of a film titled An Officer and a Gentleman. It's not a film about officers on the one hand and gentlemen on the other. It's saying you can be both things at the same time. You know, somebody might look at me and say, uh, yes, a a, a Scotsman, a scholar, and a gentleman. They don't say that nothing about me. But, you know, you could, potentially. And that wouldn't mean three people. What? You mean there are three John Allens? This is horrible. No, it just means that I'm three different things. And and, and in the same way, that figure of speech is saying the apostles... Those who were sent out by Jesus were prophets in the sense that they were able to uh, deliver God's message accurately in the form of the New Testament in a way that's there with us for all time. And then finally, there are other prophets in the New Testament too. There were the writing prophets in the Old Testament, some of them very, very important indeed, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Some of the the things that that are written by the prophets in the Old Testament are super important. There was also this whole hinterland behind them of the other prophets who emerged from the schools of the prophets, those who, who who were trained to be prophets and perhaps never had anything new to contribute that was for all time, but nonetheless helped people in their day to understand what God wanted of them and what God was going to do next. And similarly in the New Testament, although we can't add to Scripture, although the foundation of the apostles and prophets is still what we're based on, nonetheless in the New Testament church were those who had the gift of prophecy, now, they operated in a very different way from the Old Testament prophets, and we'll see that when we get to that uh, later on, but uh, they were there, and so that's another topic we have to take on. So this is a way in which God has used prophets and prophecy down through the Bible to communicate his, his will. As we said last week too, prophets in, the, in the, uh, the biblical world were very different from prophets in the nations round about them. Because, and here's that uh, encyclopedia from the internet again. Yahweh was bound to the nation by a covenant containing law that had to be obeyed because of the great agreement. Because God was the one who insisted on the boundaries of it. He'd set the laws. He'd told them what they had to do. God was involved in the future of the country. And so a prophet, as the voice of God, had an authority that was equal to the authority of the king himself. And when he spoke from God then the king had better listen. Prophets in Israel were therefore much preoccupied with indicting and judging kings, priests, other prophets, and entire people for covenant disobedience. They could say what they liked. Well, no, they could say what God liked and what God was communicating, and people had to listen. Also in Israel, the lawgiver was Yahweh, not the king. In the nations round about, when prophets spoke, they tended to offer advice to the king. If it was correction, it would only be very mild correction on small issues because the king the law, but not in Israel. In Israel, God was the king. God was the lawgiver. He was above the human king. And uh, as a result, the prophets, as the voice of Yahweh, spoke with tremendous authority. Well, when you understand the Old Testament prophets, you've got to understand them against the history of the time that they lived in. So let's just fill that in very quickly. From 1000 BC onwards, uh, when uh, the uh, nation of Israel emerges, you find uh, after David and Solomon, Saul, David and Solomon anyhow, it goes off into two different directions. The nation splits and the northern nation comes to an end in 722 BC when the Assyrians uh, march into Samaria. Well, they don't march in, they took three years to besiege it and then at the end of that, uh, the city fell and uh, the nation of Israel came to an end. The other two tribes down in the south kept on going. But they came to an end too in 586, when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, as you read about in the book of Lamentations. However, that wasn't the end for them. Because although they all went into exile, they came back uh, about 70 years later. So the prophets were working during this period, uh, the writing prophets of the Bible. And so you've, to start with, you've got those that prophesied during the New kingdom stage, when you're a northern nation and a southern nation, Then you had those who uh, prophesied, well, there was only one kingdom, but disaster was coming. And it was pretty obvious that if Israel was gone, Judah was going to find it very, very hard to stay alive as a country. And then the disaster comes. And finally, you've got some prophets who are there after the exile, saying to people, come on, it's time to rebuild. It's time to renew. God is still not finished with you. He's still got things that you can do, and it's still going to be glorious. So in that picture... Yeah, the the four major prophets fit in like this. Isaiah has something to say to all three stages, and there are questions about whether there's one Isaiah or three Isaiahs or however many, um, uh, because he just it, his prophets just covers such a long period of time. It's far out with uh, out with the width of any. Man's lifetime. Well, we'll have a look at that when we get to Isaiah. Um, I treasure what uh, Alec Altier, who's written a brilliant commentary on Isaiah, uh, says on a, a tape what I once heard where he's talking about Isaiah and he's saying, If you get to heaven and you see me in, an ar- in a corner arguing fiercely with three men, then you'll know I was wrong about Isaiah. <laughs> but I uh, thought he said I don't know I, 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 I think I'm right in saying that Isaiah wrote the whole thing but it uh, could be wrong. anyway uh, that's where Isaiah fits in and I've, I've put the three sections there but uh, the others are easier to, to put the other major prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel were there during the greatest most awful crisis that Judah ever went through the exile into Babylon and God puts his people all over the place Jeremiah is back in the city of Jerusalem Ezekiel is in a a, a resettlement camp down by the river south of Babylon. Daniel is a few miles north of there, but he's at the very centre of power. He's being trained up to be a Babylonian leader. And so you have Ezekiel shepherding the people who are in distress. You've got Daniel moving in the highest circles of power, and you've got Jeremiah back with the people back at home thinking, now what do we do? What do we do in this situation of devastation? And God has it all covered. But that's something we'll get onto eventually. So, how about the minor prophets, which is where we really need to be talking about it tonight? And uh, we will we, we'll get there. We're getting there now. Uh, we've said that there are three stages here two kingdom stage, disaster coming stage, and after the exile stage. And there are 12 minor prophets. You find them one after another at the end of the Old Testament. And it's often hard to think, am I thinking about Zephaniah or or Zechariah, and and, and to remember exactly what's there. What was Obadiah all about? All of that kind of stuff. But, But one easier way, it seems to me, of remembering who the 12 of them are, is to think about the different stages that they come from in history. For example, the two kingdoms boys, the ones for tonight, are Hosea, Amos, and Micah. They were all uh, prophesying in the 8th the, the, the century BC, just after writing had become uh, popular all over the place. And uh, 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 Hosea, Amos, and Micah um, all had a similar kind of job to do. And they have the same themes coming through the prophecy, as we'll see. So that's a two-kingdom group. Then for the disaster coming group. In the next century, you find the voice of the prophets becomes more urgent, more desperate times are getting very very close to the edge and god is still communicating with his people through this period and uh, that's where Nahum fits in habakkuk fits in and zephaniah fits in and we'll see uh, what they had to say next time then you've got the three come after the exile haggai zechariah and malachi and they're the prophets of the return The ones who stand up to the people and say, look, the job is not done yet. We need to rebuild the temple of God. We need to strengthen the walls of Jerusalem. You will see big things happening through God's people yet. One of these days, he hasn't cast you aside. He's brought you back by a miracle. When Jeremiah said at the start of the exile, 70 years and you'll be back, you didn't believe him, but God got you back. And he's got you here because he's got a job for you to do. So that's the third group, and we'll see how they fit in. And the other three are the ones that we just don't know about. There are three prophecies, the prophecy of Joel, the prophecy of Obadiah, and the prophecy of Jonah, which are incredibly difficult to date because they're not so tied into specific historical events. And so it's, it's hard to tell where they are. But that makes them a separate group on their own too because what it means is that uh, their prophecies... ...are not tied to one particular historical period. They remain true. The principles in them count for every age of the world's history. So, we'll see that when we get to that group too. But for tonight, those are the three we're going to look at. And all I want to do tonight, having filled in a little bit more of the history... ...in a bit more detail of their century, is talk a little bit about each book... Uh, and and, and give you a sort of thumbnail sketch of it. Um, That's not going to take that long, so don't worry. But uh, if you look at the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, Hosea, Joel, and Amos uh, all prophesied during a time when uh, the south was fairly settled and the north seemed to be booming economically, and then it went into disaster. Let's just retrace that. You remember how Isaiah says uh, uh, when, when his uh, prophetic life really kicks off when he goes into the temple. He has a vision of God. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, King Uzziah reigned for 27 years in, in Judah, and uh, he was a strong king. He did a lot to build up the economy. He did a tremendous amount to to make the king the kingdom wealthier and uh, and more powerful. But he he got to. Um, above himself. Second Chronicles twenty six says this. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord your God. And Uzziah gets angry, and he says he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, and leprosy broke out on his forehead. We don't know exactly what the skin disease was because the word leprosy in the Old Testament can cover a lot of different things. But clearly it was something pretty ugly. Something pretty malignant. Something that could have spread to other people as well. And so for the rest of his life, Uzziah, who'd been transformed before them, spent his time alone. He wasn't allowed in the royal palace. He lived in a house by himself, irrelevant, sidelined by a God whom he hadn't respected. Now his son started to take over as king. And for a while, although Uzziah was the king in name, it was Jotham who was making the running. Jotham was basically a good king. There were things he didn't dare to do. After what had happened to his father, Jotham decided not to get involved with religion at all. And so the false religion that was out there in the countryside, the high places where people worshipped pagan deities, that stayed. And Jotham, interestingly, in the whole of his life, did not go into the house of the Lord. Well, I suppose, having seen what happened to his father, he was a bit, a bit worried about it. He probably worshipped God in the outside courts of the temple. We just don't know. But he certainly never went in as far as he could into the temple. He just thought, let's leave this thing alone. And Jotham, too, had a son. And King Ahaz was... Um, officially a worshipper of God, but just simply paying lip service to the God he was supposed to worship. He's the guy that Isaiah got angry with. Do you remember the Holy Emmanuel story? where uh, Ahaz is threatened by two rival powers who want to, uh, to uh, invade his country and he's wondering whether he can fight against them. And Isaiah says to him, oh, don't worry, um, Ahaz, because all of this is going to burn out. Now God's on your side, you don't need to worry. Ask him a sign from the Lord, anything you like, just to check that my words are true. And Ahaz says very pompously, I will not dishonor the Lord by asking him anything like that. Isaiah gets very angry. Because all Ahaz is doing is trying to sideline God once again. To brush him out of the question. So that he can make the decisions. He can do it his own way. And he doesn't really trust God. He's the son of Jotham. He grew up in a household where God was kept on the sidelines. And Ahaz doesn't want God in the centre of the picture. And that's when Isaiah said, okay, you're going to get a sign anyway. There's going to be a child born in your palace, in your kingdom. And his name will be called Emmanuel. It's the start of the tremendous Christmas prophecies about the coming of the future Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus himself. Anyway, it's another story. Ahaz was a bit like that. He was somebody in whose reign uh, the religion of the country went on, but it took very, very much a backseat. And he died... Hezekiah, his son, took over. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. (laughs) I don't know if he overlapped with what he has. It's possible that there was a time when he was co-regent, like uh, had happened the last two times. We just don't know. But certainly from 716, he was in charge. And Hezekiah was the the king who restored the worship of God, who smashed down the heathen altars, and who, apart from three incidents in his life, uh, served God brilliantly and faithfully. So that's the story of the south. In the north, it was a completely different story. and I won't even tell the whole story. It's too involved. Jeroboam II, who was king at the time when Amos gave his presidency, was a, a, a thoroughly bad lot, but a very powerful, effective thoroughly bad lot. He was the last descendant of the house of Omri to hold the throne. And Omri had been such a, a, a wealthy and powerful king of the northern nation that for centuries afterwards, people were talking about Israel as the land of Omri. He hardly gets a mention in the Bible, though, because he was just a bad, bad king. However, he left Jeroboam II when Jeroboam came to the throne. A powerful kingdom, a thriving economy, a country in which everything seemed to be going well. The only thing was, it was a country in which the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And so uh, God sent Amos to Jeroboam, as we'll see in a moment. But after Jeroboam's death, things started to fall apart. In 753, Zechariah, his son, came to the throne, and he lasted for just one month. Then Shalom, his military commander, killed him and took over. Shalom lasted six months. Then Menachem took over from Shalom. Menachem had a rival all the way through, although Menachem was the official king. Across the other side of the Jordan, on the east, where the country of Jordan is today, Pekah. A military leader uh, who was officially in Menachem's forces was virtual king himself. He and Menachem didn't have much to do with one another, but Pico wanted to be king. And when Menachem died and his son Pico took over, then uh, Pico stepped in and had him assassinated. In the end, Hoshea became king and managed to keep the country going for another 10 years. That was when the northern kingdom eventually disappeared. So you've got a situation of absolute chaos. And within a very short period of time, within 30 years, you have six different names on the throne and lots of others who were conspiring at the same time. You have four of them, the ones I've marked there, who were assassinated. And uh, it certainly wasn't a very happy time to be in the country. So where are the prophets in all of this? First of all, Amos is up there uh, from 760 onwards or thereabouts, uh, prophesying in uh, the, the north uh, to uh, the people in the, the land of Jeroboam. And Amos, interestingly, is a Southerner. He comes from Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem. And he was sent all the way up to the north to deliver this message. And his message was a message of tremendous social justice, as you'll see if you read the prophecy. Amos says, listen, you're building an economy where things are showy and bright and brilliant. You live lives of luxury and comfort, but you sell the poor for a pair of shoes. You, 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 you're casual with people's lives. And the worship of God is nowhere, and God is going to judge you people. Down in uh, uh, 10 years later, you have Hosea, who moves from the south uh, 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 into the north, and uh, God gives him an even more impossible task. He says, Go and marry a woman who will be unfaithful to you, a woman who was probably a prostitute. It was a very unsuitable marriage, anyhow, and you find that it falls apart very quickly. They have children, and then she, she leaves. She goes has a high time with her lovers. She runs out of money. And Hosea is told by God, go and bring her back. I'm not finished with Israel, you're not finished with your wife. Bring her back and show the people what happens in your marriage relationship, how they are bringing my heart to. And so that's where Hosea fits in. And then Micah, well, as you can see, he's a little bit later on, maybe 15 years after the others, Micah gets started. And he prophesies right through the latter days of Ahaz and through the reign of Hezekiah. And Micah, interestingly, is quite close to Isaiah. We don't know what the relationship was between them. But although Micah comes from the countryside, and he, he, lived, he was from jeth Gath, which was the old Philistine countryside, uh, he, he moves to Jerusalem, and he seems to have delivered most of his work in Jerusalem. Now, that's exactly where Isaiah was. And there's a chapter of Micah and a chapter of Isaiah, as we usually see, which are virtually word for word the same. <laughs> did they both borrow from the same ancient song? Did Micah compose it and Isaiah say, no, I'm happy that, that's good. Or did Isaiah compose it and say, "Oh, that's good, I'll borrow that for my... Pro-. We don't know, but we do know that Micah and Isaiah were the same message, but working in a very different way, were uh, in Jerusalem at the same time. So, very, very quick book, uh, quick look, because I've got five minutes to go with uh, these three prophets. First of all, Amos. If you want to remember the structure of the book of Amos, and this is not a talk about Amos tonight, but the way I find easy to remember what's going on in Amos is to think 8, 3, 2, 5. That's because after the key verse that starts off Amos, you have that sequence, 8, 3, 2, 5. Uh, let me just tell you what that, that key verse is, actually, because, uh, uh, yep, here we go. Uh, it starts off like this. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, De- what he saw concerning Israel, two years before the earthquake. Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, I think, right, here we are. What's this going to be about? And it's peculiar. The Lord roars from Zion, and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of carl withers thank you that's very helpful what's all about well what amos is saying is listen you people have forgotten god you've forgotten the lord and the lord is roaring like a wild animal it's just you're not listening and if you did listen you'd be terrified we don't often hear people roaring nowadays and usually it's because they've lost the plot if they do but in uh, in amos's day wild animals out on the mountains of Israel all the time and if you heard a boar, or a bear or a lion roaring in the hillside then you'd be scared straight away. How close is it? How much danger am I in? God is roaring like a lion says, says Amos and you people are not listening. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. All of your prosperity is going to just wither away. It's going to evaporate. And you don't realize that that's connected to the, 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 the Lord, the fact that the Lord is roaring. He's trying to get through to you people and say this prosperity, this bubble of happiness that you're living in, it's fated, it's doomed, it's, it just won't last. And so that's the key verse, and then you've got the eight three 2, 5. First of all, eight judgments for the nations. <laughs> Amos talks about six of the different countries round the nation of Israel and says that God is judging them and things are going to happen to them. And you can imagine his first hearers in Israel saying, yep, that's good. The Ammonites are going to get in the, met, in the neck. The Moabites are going to suffer. Tyre is going to suffer. And then the final two in the list are Judah and Israel itself. And what Amos is saying is God is concerned with all of the people of the world. Um, he has set in our hearts standards. He's set ways for behaving that everybody knows but do we live up to them we don't and so everybody is judged now you people are in a special mess because you are God's covenant people you're part of the great agreement God has made a deal with you. he's shown you what you want to be doing and you're not doing it and so those eight judgments for the nations are just a way of saying God of the whole earth the God who roars from heaven is especially upset with you then there's three, three messages from Is, for Israel in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And they all start with the word, listen, <laughs> if you're reading the book of Amos. But uh, those three messages start saying, look, don't be complacent. Things are happening that uh, you need to realize uh, in your society. There's something wrong with the leadership. There's something wrong with the social structure. There's something wrong with the way that we relate to one another. And those three messages are the three bit. And you get two warnings. Uh, amos warns those who on the one hand are looking forward to the day of the lord the day the prophet spoke about when everything was going to be set right when god was going to come in judgment on the earth oh want to be great when the day of the lord comes and everything and amos says you should be trembling because the day of the lord is not going to be fun for you guys Um, and uh, you should be worried about what god is going to do because justice and you are not exactly the best of friends. The other warning, well, it's for people who are not looking forward to anything, just saying, it's fine the way it is. I'm complacent, I'm happy. And so Amos is saying, listen, whether you're just living in a fool's paradise, or whether you're looking forward to some great day when God will lift you up and push everybody else down, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's justice, it's it's righteousness that you need to be looking for. Then finally, there's the five. And there are five visions at the end of Amos, which we will not go into because it would take too long that's amos a prophet sent out of his country to the northern country to tell them all about what god expects from his people and the visions tell us a bit about what god is going to do next and point us forward to and believe when god is going to bring the nation back together there's going to be pain there's going to be suffering most people are going to lose only have at the present moment but it's also that god can do something with his people which is real and permanent and, and valuable and uh, then you have the bit about God's ultimate future, finally, at the end of Amos there. Hosea, well, we've said that Hosea uh, uh, is about this marriage relationship uh, with, a-, with a-, a woman who is, is, is just a heartbreaker. And actually, that's just the first three chapters. There are three sections in Hosea. For the first three chapters are about Hosea and his marriage. And chapter one is about the relationship, how God commands the marriage to start with. Chapter two is about the result, the betrayal, the abandonment, and the, 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 the abandonment of the woman herself by her lovers. And chapter three is about the recovery. And uh, it's as if Hosea is saying, look, this is what God is saying to you. I want you back. I don't want to abandon you. I don't want to cut you off. I want you to come home. Then you have seven chapters about Israel. <laughs> And it's talking about, it's analysing in fine depth what the nation of Israel has done that's got it away from God. And it talks about what unfaithfulness looks like in chapters 4 to 6. You guys, says Isaiah, don't even realise how far you've gone uh, away from God. Let's just analyse what unfaithfulness looks like. And then chapters 7 to 10, he says, as a result, God is going to judge you. Let's have a look at what judgment looks like. And this is all still valuable stuff for us today because we all wander away from God. And it's important to realize how deceitful your heart can be and how you can think you're doing fine when you're actually not. And it's important, too, to understand the process by which God judges his people and the reasons for which he does it. And then finally, Hosea ends with four chapters about God, (laughs) and it talks about the grace of God. It finishes with those words that we read right at the start of the service. Isaiah is talking about what God wants to do to restore his people, to bring them back, to throw away the idols, to have a relationship with them which is, is fruitful and wonderful and creative. And that's where the book of Isaiah ends. Finally, there's Micah. How about Micah? Well, three things in Micah. First of all, what God's people have been doing. Micah talks to the southern nation in Jerusalem about how the people of God have failed him they're living in the wrong way and he has a different perspective from Amos and Hosea so it's a a different kind of way of looking at the same kind of problem what does unfaithfulness look like what have the people done I think is especially concerned about the leaders and that's where chapter 3 comes in after his two-part analysis in one and two of how the people have failed he says you know it's down to the leaders because the leaders have misled the people and unless the leader get it right everything goes wrong in the country and so he moves into the second part of his book, which is chapters 4 and 5, about what God is going to do. He talks first about God's ultimate vision, where he really wants the people to be. Not like it is at the moment, but something far better. Okay, this is the reign of Hezekiah. Things are going reasonably well, but God wants more. God wants to take us to something much bigger. And that's where also you reach chapter 5, which again we've been thinking about at Christmas, haven't we? because that's where Micah talks about someone who's going to come from Bethlehem one of these days, who will be everything that the leaders of Israel are not. And he'll, uh, in the land of Judah, show what God's wise, true leadership actually is. And then for the first time, the world will be secure. His people will blossom and flourish as never before. God's perfect leader is coming. And finally, in chapter 6 and 7, You've got a whole section which is about how to come back to God. If you do want to change things, if you do want to get back to the relationship you should have with God, what needs to happen? And what Micah has to say is don't despair because God is a God of incredible forgiveness. Who is a pardoning God like you? He says, there's no God anywhere you'll fight in the universe who has such a pardoning heart as our God. He wants to bring us back. He wants in grace to restore us. So that's where these three guys go. And just one final slide if I can. What are the key things that all three of them have been sent to say? We've covered most of them, so we don't need to say much. But uh, let's just mention these five. One, take God seriously. God is the God of the whole world. The one who roars from Zion. The one whom you cannot sideline. And he judges everybody. He has no rivals. And there's no fruitful life apart from him. God says in Hosea, from me your fruit is found. If you want a flourishing, prosperous life, then as a nation, as a church, as an individual, you have to submit to me because I will make you blossom in a way that will never otherwise happen. The second thing we are saying is do what you promised. God's people. Need to live out the covenant in real life. If you are the people of God, you've got to behave that way. You can't live for your own selfish agenda. And you are there to show the world what the fruitfulness that God brings to a life actually looks like. Third, understand God's mercy. God really does judge. The judgment of God is coming. All three of them isn't it. But God is merciful to those who repent. The doom is not inevitable, and God's love forgives. You see, when the prophets here spoke about God's judgment coming on the people, he only did so, they only did so because they wanted people to change. And later on in history, you find that in the day of Jeremiah, before the fall of Jerusalem, he's, he's predicting all sorts of things from God. And the king, some of the servants of the king say, he must die. You can't say things like this. This is terrible. And some of the people are there say, hang on a minute. Do you remember Micah of Moresheth, <laughs> our prophet Micah? Years and years ago, he prophesied a sort of doom and judgment from God. And what happened? Did they put Micah to death? No, they didn't put him to death. Instead, they listened to what he said. And as a result, God turned that wrath away from his nation. And so what Micah's doing here, and jo- um, Amos uh, and Hosea as well, is saying this is what God must do unless. It's not inevitable. Repentance is possible. Turnaround can be done. And fourth, someone's coming who will change everything. One of these days, God's ultimate servant will appear and everything will be changed as a result. And it all centers on Jesus. And from 800 years before it happens, these guys are all pointing forward and saying, you wait, the one is coming who's going to make all of this make sense. Finally, 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 what God really wants. God's ultimate aim is not to punish, not to judge, not to nag. His ultimate aim is to bring his people together in a trusting relationship of confiding love. It's to redeem people. It's to bring them back. Forgive them and pardon them. And and that's where all of his plans for the universe are heading. So that's where the prophets start. As we'll see next next time, Uh, the next group of prophets tell us a bit more about God in a crisis, God in an emergency. What help can you look for from God? when things get really, really difficult. But this is the basic message of the first writing prophets. And you can see why, can't you? God wanted it written down. Because this is still what's important for our lives, our relationship with God today. I'm going to hand back to you.